I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Are we dreaming of California? Yeah, we could sing it. All right. One, two, three, four. All the deeps are cut. All the deeps are cut. And the cut is deep. And the cut is deep. California deep On such a cut that's deep. Such a cut that's deep. On Deep Cut, we discuss a director's most popular film or a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss the director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. Season 3! Kind of! Welcome back! Kind of-ish! Season 4... ever? (laughs) (laughs) We're not really calling these seasons anymore. We're just going to continue on until you stop listening to us. Uh, (laughs) Deep cut ad infinitum. (laughs) So the plan is from this series onwards, we're just going to keep on releasing deep cut episodes and take breaks in between our director chunks if we feel the need to or the need not to. And that can hopefully accommodate our schedules because we love doing the podcast so much. And we also love having jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and we want to do in a way that it can be sustainable for three of us for as long as possible. So that's why we agreed that this is going to be the plan going forward. And if it changes, we will let you know. But I'm very happy forging down this new road with you two. For now, just stay subscribed so you'll know when episodes drop whenever (laughs) (laughs) yeah flash attack flash attack so really hit that subscribe button or you'll never know (laughs) surprise it's deep cut what a way to mark our return from our brief hiatus with the kino king certified goat i keep on saying that about like literally every director but this one's the one this one's the legit one (laughs) and if you don't know who we're talking about is wonkar Wai, motherfuckers (laughs) whoa (laughs) we're gonna do a we're (laughs) we're gonna do a four episode stint on the works and the life of you missed the world. Ooh, good point. <laughs> the world. <laughs> the world. Oh, shit. I don't want to be sued by Criterion. We're not sponsored yet, so. I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> no press is bad press. <laughs> yeah, we need this bad press. I think all three of us are very familiar with Wong Gawai and his work. And I'm sure as you are a person listening to a film podcast, I hope you've at least heard the name Wong Gawai. Before we launch into our discussion of the movie today which is the popular pick which why we've decided (laughs) Chunking Express is the popular pick. I think a good way into that Wilson might be your personal connection to Wong Kar Wai. I think it is. So it was grade nine in my grade nine film class. Uh, wow, I went to a really like bougie <laughs> private school that had uh, that had a really really great film program. That film class. Shout out to Miss Wong, who is probably listening to this podcast. You're the reason that I do film today. Thank you, Miss Wong. <laughs> we were starting our new unit on Wong Kar Wai, and I had no clue. Well, I guess I had a little bit of a clue who, about who this guy was, but I had not seen any of his films before. And we sat down over the course of like two lessons. We screened all of Chunking Express and the rest was history. Like a lot of people talk about the movie that gets them into loving movies and Chunking Express 
is that movie for me. There is no denying just the power that that movie has in like moving you and just grabbing your attention and not letting go for the full hour and a half of its runtime was just something so new and refreshing to me. After watching it, I was like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to make. That was incredible. It was life-changing. Of course, subsequently, the rest is history, and now I'm running a film podcast with you two. No deep cut without Chung King. <laughs> come full circle. We have come full circle, and I'm. that's why I'm sort of a little nervous because he's, he's sort of my big fish. Mm-hmm. This is the big fish. Literally, like, every other movie I've seen from his filmography has been nothing short of stellar. And every time I've seen Chunk Express after that first time, it's only grown in its meaning to me personally. I don't think the quality at all has been, like, affected by the amount of times I've rewatched it. And I I realize this past rewatch for this episode... Um, was the the tenth one I logged on Letterboxd wow. like over my Letterboxd career? Is it your most watched movie in general? Oh, maybe, maybe. Mine's probably Ice Age Two. <laughs> Wait, really? <laughs> when I was a kid, I watched Ice Age Two like constantly. <laughs> I know. I had a movie that I had on my iPod Nano that I watched probably twenty times, and it was the movie Bolt. Oh, that movie. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> when you were kids, you just keep watching the same movie over and over. The other movie I watched a lot is Shrek 2. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, we're not talking about baby movies here. We're talking about big, big real adult movies with about real... Big daddy movies. <laughs> real adults with, with real feelings. Yeah, like Shrek 3. <laughs> Wilson, I've also heard you talk about how Chungking Express has come to represent or evoke a feeling of home for you in Hong Kong. Yeah, yeah. And I think even like, after being away from Hong Kong for a long time for college and also working post-college, I found a lot of comfort in watching Hong Kong movies and also discovering a lot of Hong Kong directors past Wang Gawai. So Wang Gawai sort of like, for me, acted as sort of like a gateway director to other Hong Kong or Chinese language directors. Mm. But not to say that his work is not as fruitful, because I think that's like you're hitting the peak, but it's also the the opening to to this vast world of of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. But Chungking Express in particular, just I have a lot of memories about it in Hong Kong and also as the city has been changing very drastically the past few years and also me being back, it is also more and more times that I watch it is sort of a reminder of, of the Hong Kong of the past, Hmm. especially considering that this film centers on two cops. And I guess what I now see as a very romantic view or romanticized view of the police force in Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. but also taking into account that the, the fact that they are cops plays very little into the like, grand scheme of the plot and everything. And also, Wong Kar was making it at a different time where cops meant different things. <laughs> but yeah, not to, not to get so deep into it, but I think in a more outer context sort of way, Chunking Express was the film that introduced Wong Gawai to Western audiences. That was 
honestly largely due to Quentin Tarantino seeing it and, right. <laughs> and putting his face and re-releasing it under Rolling Thunder. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, there's like a whole freaky, weird YouTube video where Quentin Tarantino like talks at the camera <laughs> about why chunking's great and he like he just does all his like really funky And then the camera tilts. Yeah. <laughs> it, it skews. I didn't even there is a camp. Yeah, it skews or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it Dutch Dutch and angles. It, it Dutch moving. angles out. Cants, cants, cants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh boy. And, and he keeps on talking about why he loves the movie, and that's why I think that's what played before the movie started if you bought a Rolling Thunder right. DVD of this movie. Oh brother. <laughs> <laughs> that you have QT talking at you for four minutes. Ah, uh, just the cherry on top of the pie. <laughs> Before we get into Chunking Express, the meat and bones of this movie, let's do a quick director background and overview because I think considering the other films that we're going to talk about in the series and also this, the film we're going to talk about today, I think um, Wang Gawai's personal history is really important when considering his work. Wang Gawai was born in 1958 in Shanghai, and he moved to Hong Kong when he was five years old. So he moved to Hong Kong in the early 60s, which is really important considering that films Days of Being Wild and also In the Mood for Love take place in that time period in Hong Kong. Talking about also like Shanghainese diaspora across China and also Hong Kong diaspora across the world. He has said in interviews that his father was an ex-sailor. Andy Lau plays a sailor in Days of Being Wild. But uh, his father also later worked as a nightclub manager and his mother was a housewife. Wang Gawai graduated in 1980 from Hong Kong Polytechnic University where he got a degree in graphic design. But then right after graduating, he joined TVB, which was sort of like the rite of passage of every Hong Kong director coming up through like the Hong Kong New Wave era of like 60s, 70s cinema. Because I, I don't know if you guys remember, but when we were talking about Toe in season one, he also worked his way up through TVB as a scriptwriter and a director. And this is where both Wang Gawai and Johnny Toe got experience shooting on sets that had very fast turnaround times that probably didn't have like a fully written script before they were shooting. And this is sort of where Wang Gawai started building up his own rules and ethics of working on a on a picture. Remind me, TVB is a TV station with fictional shows? Yes, fictional shows. So at that time, a TVB was very big and was the only public broadcaster in Hong Kong. It currently still is a public broadcaster, but I think back then they had a lot of money to make um, a lot of scripted content for TV, which would be like varying genres, but still very much within the genre classifications. It was his work as a scriptwriter working in a lot of what we would equate to now as writing rooms, working on various genres, which sort of like led him to his first few features. But also his time at TVB was very important because of the few relationships that he built with fellow collaborators and people who would help him later on in his career, most notably Patrick Tam and Jeff Lau. So Patrick Tam is a fellow director and Wong wrote the script for Patrick Tam's 1987 film Final Victory, was a sister film to Wong's directorial debut As Tears Go By, and Patrick Tam also edited Days of Being Wild and Ashes of Time. But I guess the most important 
thing that Patrick Tam brought into Wong Gawai's life was how he introduced Wong to the work of authors Manuel Puig and Raymond Chandler. So these two authors, even though I haven't read either of their works before, they have a big influence on Wong's stories and the types of films that he likes to make. Puig's work had a big influence on how Wong has a lot of like monologues and his films also always seem to show a, like a vast cast of characters, but really going deep emotionally with all of them. So the other important relationship that Wong started or nurtured in, in this time when he was working at TVB was with another director called Jeff Lau. And Jeff Lau was a fellow director, but was also more commercially successful than Wong and was sort of the one that got him his first directorial gig, which was As Tears Go By and has helped him throughout his career to get things funded, basically. So Wong's first two films, As Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild, were both local financial flops, even though a lot of people <laughs> in the arts community in Hong Kong really appreciated this. I think people, like the general public, were just not ready for something that both As Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild take regular genre conventions and sort of like take his own spin on it. A lot of people in the arts really loved it and also through those first two features built really good strong working relationships with some of the biggest stars in Hong Kong at the time and that included uh, Tony Leung, Zhu Wei, um, Maggie Chung, Andy Lau, uh, Leslie Chung, Takeshi Kaneshiro, and Bridget Lin. And they were, were all big, big names in Hong Kong and were probably the, the big draw for audiences to come watch these movies um, when they were coming out in theaters. Wong is also very well known for shooting for extensive periods of time and trying to take his cut to the very last minute. There was like a few moments later on in his career, including... Uh, in the Mood for Love's premiere in Cannes and also 2046's premiere at Cannes where it was reported that Wong was editing up to the day before the premiere. And even in the case of 2046 and I think also The Grandmaster, he re-edited after his Cannes premiere and that's why there's like multiple edits of literally everything that he's done. <laughs> um, yeah. And then the restorations. Yes. <laughs> Asterisk coming back to that. <laughs> And I, th I also think that it's important when talking about the making of Chunking Express, which came out of a delayed edit as well. He also likes to shoot without a script. He also mainly has an outline and he just writes scenes night before and then decides to shoot them day of. And then like because he shot so much for films like Happy Together and In the Mood for Love and even for Chunking, a lot of things would just be left on the cutting room floor. And it was really up to him and his editors, most prominently being William Chang, to figure out what the movie is in post, which is honestly like so shocking to me because even though his movies feel very loose, especially his earlier ones, I would say that like it feels to me like someone storyboarded everything hmm. because of the flow of shots in scenes, not because of how well put together... I don't know how steady all the shots are and everything, but it's just about the flow of shots. But I think that a lot of that magic was 
found in the edit, at least with Wong's films. His frequent collaborators outside of the actors that he works with include William Chang, who production designs, through production designing, he just has such a good sense of what each movie is. That's why Wong entrusted him with the edit, which is incredible. Oh, interesting. Two roles to double hat. It's like quite uncommon. Yeah. And also in Wong's work, there's so much of a link between space and time. Mm-hmm. Those two jobs are literally space and time. The link is William Chang. <laughs> <laughs> Dang. He's the secret sauce. <laughs> like, yes, you can give a lot of credit to Wang Gawai, and I think he does deserve a lot of credit. But I think a lot of people, when talking about his work, you really tend to throw the people that have been working for him countless times and developed his style alongside him. Mm. And they, they don't really, like, consider that um, when talking about him. So I think I want to take the, the time to recognize people like William Chang and also Christopher Doyle, yeah. who is very iconic in his own right as Wong's frequent collaborator and cool guy. <laughs> His cinematographer, to be clear. Yes, his cinematographer, Christopher Doyle. And also, I want to point out his cinematographer on Chung King and also as Tears Go By, Andrew Lau, who really was very crucial in shaping the look of those early um, Wong films. But that's as brief as I can be about a biography on Wong Gawai prior to his big break, which was Chung King Express. So before we go into this movie, I want to talk about where you guys discovered Chunking Express, what you thought of it now, and I think all three of us watched the new 2021 Wong Kar Wai approved restoration of the film, which mm, yeah. sparked a lot of heated debate on film Twitter last year when people started watching it and people were freaking out because it looks different, which it definitely does. Well, to piggyback off of the bio, one detail that's important to add is I believe pretty much whenever Wong appears in public, he's wearing these very cool sunglasses. <laughs> he is someone who strikes me as a little bit hard to pigeonhole personality-wise. Mm. Like I have trouble reading what kind of a person he is. Then you watch his movies and there's such a depth of feeling and the way they move, both camera movement and the edit, feels so spontaneous. I'm actually not so surprised as Wilson's saying that so much of the movies are constructed in the edit. It seems like he just shoots and goes for beautiful shots that are full of emotion with the actors doing compelling things on screen and then has a sharp eye with his editor for timing those things out in conjunction with one another. It is very vivacious filmmaking mm -hmm. some movies you can just feel a heartbeat and rewatching chung king express i definitely feel that heartbeat i also definitely have some thoughts on this as a restored movie and an altered movie yeah it feels different than the last time i watched it oh oh boy does it mm. <laughs> <laughs> what about you ben i'm with you on the spontaneity like i think I don't remember the first time I've seen Chunking, but definitely early on as a young cinephile. <laughs> <laughs> was Chunking your like, introduction to Wong Kar Wai or was it In the Mood for Love? I couldn't tell you. I, I don't remember what order I was watching Wong films, but I remember that they kind of like stuck with me and like 
as these kind of very different feeling films compared to other things I was watching, which was mainly Hollywood films and Hollywood indies, if anything. Mm-hmm. What I love about Chunking is how it feels spontaneous and yet somehow also very well constructed. It doesn't feel slapdash. Mm. We can talk a bit more when we talk about form and like cinematography, but it feels organized with some kind of logic that you can't quite grasp. Mm. That's the thing that I think Wong is just so adept at. Like he's so good at finding the core of the film and it's an invisible thread that he's weaving that you just have to kind of be along on the right with to kind of feel it. There are very few filmmakers that kind of work on this almost pure emotive yeah. like level. Like, And some parts of Chunking, I think, can be such total cornball like lines and moves, but like right. they work so well here. Like if I just take this entire thing out of context, it just seems so strange. But then in the context of this movie, it works right. like 100% of the time. Like it's always going to have exactly the right tonality that I think he is going for. Yeah. Part of that, I think, is the earnestness with which, like, I think as we're doing this podcast, we know I love in terms of the way that <laughs> I love directors going at their themes and their characters. And that's the thing that I love about Chunking. And, I mean, he's always kind of making romantic movies, yeah. even when he's making his genre films. And he is so, you know, committed to this idea of romantic love and, like, the romanticizing of love as an idea like i'm just imagining this i don't know 60 plus year old man talking about love and i'm just like that's so weird but he still probably (laughs) believes it to this day (laughs) i also have trouble imagining that because wong isn't so bleeding heart about his romantic Mm. feelings you know Mm, right he doesn't express it verbally characters don't tell each other that they love each other no it's all in their behavior monologues and yeah, Ben, the tone of the world around them. Yeah. The sentiment seeps out of it, but uh-huh. it maintains a cool facade. Looking at you, Tony Wong. <laughs> oh, a quick note about the restorations. I don't know when we'll talk about this. I don't know. I'm kind of on the who gives a fuck kind of. <laughs> we can talk the... about it now. Oh, okay, I... let's talk about it now. <laughs> let's just talk about it now. So the new restoration, I guess the most glaring difference is the color timing of everything. So... I think Wong went back and basically recolor corrected the whole thing. And what was an, I guess, an image to me, which was a lot more washed out in the original, I think he really punches in on the contrast in this time and also like the color tint of a lot of scenes as well. Another thing that really got me was there's a scene in the start of the second story where Tony Leung goes to up to the, the booth and Faye tells him that his ex-girlfriend left him the the letter his keys and the letter uh, and he says he doesn't want to take it and what happens after that in the original edit is this really beautiful moment set to like basically just to some background noise but basically silence where it's this step printed shot from across the street of um tony Leung slowly drinking his coffee as like crowds of people rush in front of him and Faye, and it's sort of like this moment where you get to settle and you get to really like sit with that heartbreak that he's feeling at that moment but during that time in the new edit the cover of the cranberry's dreams by fei wong comes on for the first time in the movie at that point which really took me by surprise because the first and only time that it plays during the movie is during that sequence where Faye is in his apartment right and messing things up yeah. and that was the only time that it played I guess in the original, aside from the end credits, but now he's sort of sprinkled it throughout, which sort of echoes his own idea of 
repeating songs over and over again so that makes sense right but i do somewhat think that it takes away from that moment a little bit specifically the sound in the so-called original edit is the sound of an airplane taking off i'm gonna look at it recently mm-hmm. and some people have talked about how that you know like fits in thematically with like where tony's character is at yeah but i want to throw this out there because i read a alleged riddick comment okay <laughs> when i went to go searching about the differences uh-huh. this guy said he saw chunking express in the 90s in the theater and the needle drop happens in that scene in the theaters and it was only in the rolling thunder edit oh. that the needle drop was gone and the airplane sound was in i don't know whether this is true mandela wow. effect mandela effect yeah wow. <laughs> mandela effect so i don't know <laughs> but i want to make my point which is that okay if we're talking about this specific choice and i mean we can go into like what that does on the use of music and sound design in terms of feeling and I think using this music cue earlier creates a sense that more of the second half is part of this kind of music video feel. Right. Mm. Whereas, like, I would say in the so-called, what we're calling the original edit, that music video begins a little later when she starts entering Tony's apartment. Whereas in this one, from that needle drop, it's starting to really feel like we're entering this music video world of phase kind of mind, I would say. Right. So if I were to make a, like, distinct comparison as to what that choice does to the film that's what i would say but this whole mandela effect thing (laughs) whether that needle drop happens there or not in the original edit or whatever we call the original edit i don't really think it matters like i would say that yes it caught me off guard because honestly i couldn't tell you what i thought when i rewatched it like i was like this seems off but i'm not sure why yeah and i couldn't tell myself at that point until i went to look it up yeah But then in the end of the day, it doesn't really, I think, affect the grand scheme of the film. But I don't think that's the thing that people are talking about, though. I think people are just like, this is, it's like, it's not, it's not the same movie. When you make these changes, the output of it is not the same movie. And people, some people will just have a different feeling when watching it. With Chunking, it's probably not even like the worst case. Right. Because when it comes to something like Fallen Angels, where you alter the whole aspect ratio of the entire movie that's when things start getting fishy for me at least personally because i think aspect ratio is a really important part of the movie and this one the aspect ratio also has changed oh it does from what people think of what the original edit is (laughs) so most people know of this film in its 185 to 1 aspect ratio which is what the home video aspect ratio was but it's kind of been redone to its 166 to 1 aspect ratio which is what it apparently was theatrically so actually this taller ratio is closer to the original theatrical vision of the film yeah but that's kind of my point my point is like i think what wong is doing here is so smart in terms of like how he's going at the restorations he's kind of Mm -hmm. coming at these films the same way that he is coming at them when he makes them which is that these films are about a feeling yeah you know chunking is about a feeling a bunch of feelings about chunking at a time his feelings about chunking from now when he's restoring them and it is not about the specific sequence of shots how they're necessarily supposed to look color wise or even aspect ratio wise wong doesn't actually care about those things no he cares about what feeling does chunking express give me as a filmmaker and probably i would say he was probably thinking about how that affects the audience and so as long as he feels he preserves the feeling that he believes this film has he doesn't give a fuck what he does to it. Yeah, <laughs> so, all power to him as well. I'm all for that because I realized watching this, I was like, like so many things I've watched, I don't remember the exact shot-to-shot sequence. You will only know that if you went like 
full like film. I know the shot to shot sequences <laughs> of some scenes there. <laughs> but like the like you don't your brain cannot capture all those details, you know what I mean? Yes, so yes. in the end, all film becomes memory when you're out of the theater. Yeah. Mm. And so all you remember is the feeling of chunking. What is memory if not feeling, right? Mm. Yeah. So then <laughs> at the end of the day, does rewatching the restoration give you the same feeling? And for me, yeah, it does. So I that honestly that's yeah. my stance now. Like who cares about what has changed? You know? It doesn't matter. Yeah. I wanna cite our friend Graham Brown, who is a film preservationist, and in our Discord server a few months ago had a really great conversation with us about these restorations. And I agree with what he told us that the problem is not so much in the creative act, but more in the nomenclature. This is not a restoration because as mm. he and preservations define it, restoration is a duplication and clarification of an original work to update it with modern technology. This is what Graham would call a re-release or a new edit. Right. And he feels that the opening credits should mark it as a re-release or a new edit from that particular year, and that restoration is, quote, not a catch-all term, right. end quote. And I agree with that. Well, Wong definitely knows that, right? Like, he did that with Ashes of Time when he released Ashes of Time Redux, which yeah. was still, like, around the time that he made Chunking Express is when he re-edited Ashes of Time. And while I think, yes, he definitely knows that they're different movies, but <laughs> yeah. the fact that on the Criterion channel where all of us watch these movies, I'm not sure. I watched it on movie. Did. Oh. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> on Criterion channel, they list the original version as the alternate version. Hmm. That's what it is listed as, like the original Criterion release version as the alternate version. So basically, what Wong is trying to do with these restorations is throwing away what was old and being like, these are the ones that you have to watch now. These are my movies that I'm making now. And I don't know, those other versions you can <laughs> regard as older alternate versions. I understand the problem in terms of nomenclature because we have all understood restorations in a certain way, the way that, you know, film archivists and preservationists are trying to restore films as close to as what they used to be, right? So they have a very specific kind of way of doing it. But, you know, he the way that he kind of goes at these restorations is that he's saying that he's restoring them to his quote-unquote original vision. <laughs> Which, I don't know, maybe it's his, his vision of what his original vision was, but that's not your original vision anymore. That's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so honestly, I, I fall back on I don't care. You know, like, yeah. as long as the movie is good, the movie is good. And yeah. I, I always fall back to this idea that films are about feeling. I think re-watching this and having this kind of realization makes me feel like there doesn't need to be that kind of preciousness about, like, certain things about film. Right. Because... At the end of the day, Wong is like an artist, you know, and he's quite loose about the way that he goes at film form, which is the why we have Chunking Express, which is why we have all these other films. And he is just, you know, kind of being true to himself, if anything. And it's such a beautiful thing that through the course of his really, I guess, now very long career that he's been allowed to to be an artist and and make these decisions because a lot of other directors and other artists don't yeah. have the have the privilege to do so, but I'm really glad that Wong has the power to do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> because we're putting an emphasis on the question of whether or not a change creates a different feeling, with this particular scene of Tony Leung having coffee, the step printed shot, phase watching him, it's a very key shot 
of the second part of the movie. It is sort of the dynamic between them in an image. Yeah. Right? I guess at that moment. I agree with Ben that the shift in audio from an airplane, which is what Tony Lung's Cop 633 is thinking about. 663 or 633? 663. Mm. 663. Well, in the movie, they confuse it, so I might as they well hear it too. They made that mistake, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's thinking about his stewardess ex-girlfriend. Fei Wong is staring at him and lusting after him. Switching to Fei Wong's cover of Dreams effectively changes the subjectivity of the shot, which I think is fascinating, and I like that choice. I will say the editing of the song there plays out the first verse, and then it jumps to later in the song, and it felt a little sloppy. You can hear that jump as well. Yeah. You can hear that jump. The way that jump happens actually made me pause the movie and look up, was the sound different in this scene? Mm. So because it's not a smoothly edited moment, it bumped me and gave me the feeling something's off here. Is this a updated 2021 moment here? And it was. It was. (laughs) (laughs) The other big thing that changes that I subjectively, my opinion, really don't like is the end credits. Uh... It cheapens the end so much for me. To have these digital PowerPoint transition card (laughs) shots with the letters zooming across. And I went and looked back at the original ending. It's so simple. It's elegant. It's simple. It's these white cards with black text for the credits. And it leaves you more space to feel the ending than this current version does. It feels abrupt and a little canned to me. Yeah. He he has been doing that for the other films in the restoration, like re-release of of his film. So I think it is a thing to like tie them together. I believe that title cards and credits are part of the artistic statement of the movie though. It's a pretty big change. Another big thing that I want to talk about for just a little bit is the new translations of the subtitles. Uh, why the why why do you need to why do you need to change it? Like I don't I don't understand why there is a need to change up the subtitle dialogue that has been long standing for as long as the film has been released in the the states, I guess. But even though like I like can understand the Cantonese, it's just it, Cantonese that's being spoken. I think that it just threw me off so many times because I'm like you're not really getting to like the heart of what's being being said mm. you're just trying to like form it correctly so someone who's reading it can understand perfectly what they're trying to say in english but you just sort of lose the essence of what is being said and the thing that's so beautiful about wang Gawai's dialogue is that they are so like quirky and weird and the magical thing is that it still like works within the world but when you sort of shift it to something that's more normal and nor- more natural and more just regular conversation it just loses its charm i think it loses quite a lot of charm but i i don't know about you guys because yeah like for eli and ben with the subtitles did you guys feel that difference a little bit honestly no because i don't remember what the line to line of the original subtitles was watching it this time i wasn't really noticing anything off I know the big one is Undying Love and Love You 10,000 Years. Yeah. I know that's the big one. Yeah. I generally don't have a huge opinion on that. I get what you're saying about the quirkiness of it, but also I understand that uh, sometimes Chinese is very difficult to translate to English one-to-one. It is true. And like for subtitling, it's quite difficult. And sometimes 
what sounds awkward in English is not awkward in Mandarin or in Cantonese. You know what I mean? These characters aren't quirky because their Cantonese translates weirdly to English. No, no, no. But like, I guess like even in contrast to like regular spoken Cantonese, right? Some of the stuff that they say is like pretty weird and pretty out there. But I think that gets lost as well. But I think at the end of the day, that's really impossible to translate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So I I mean, I'm okay with it. I don't have a huge opinion on this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> okay, should we move on? I think we've been talking about this new version yeah. for way too long. I think it's really interesting, though. Wilson, you have some context for the movie. Let's get into the actual movie itself. Chunking was made in 1994 after basically Wong shooting his first two features. After the first two features, he decided to form his own production company and embark on his like biggest feature yet, which was a adaptation of novel called The Eagle Shooting Heroes and his film Ashes of Time. And Ashes of Time sort of brought together all the actors that he was working with prior to that film like big name actors and also it was sort of a collaboration with Jeff Lau who made his own version of the Eagle Shooting Heroes movie which was a parody <laughs> which starred a lot of the same actors that starred in Ashes of Time but the reason that I wanted to talk about Ashes of Time is because it took ages to shoot because of the actor's schedules and also because of Wong really wanting what he wants from the movie and not settling for a half-baked movie like what happened with Days of Being Wild with, I guess, the second story in that movie, which never got shot. Because the edit and the shooting took so long, he wanted to take a break. And in the two months that he took a break from editing Ashes of Time, he shot all of Chunking Express. Wow. Ridiculous. That's the legend of Wong Gawai, who, who, who takes years to finish projects, made Chunking Express in two months. <laughs> so <laughs> he likened shooting Chunking Express to a film made by students who just graduated from film school. So they used the most simple lighting equipment or basically like no lighting equipment. They shot documentary style. It very much felt like a low budget movie. And it was a low budget movie. It was made for around 2 mil USD. It was sort of a returning to Wong Gawai's youth after two big time period movies uh, in Days of Being Wild and Ashes of Time. The English title of the film is reflective of the film itself with two words and each symbolizing different halves of the film. So Chungking being Chungking Mansions, which a lot of the first half of the film with Bridget Lin as a drug smuggler working in Chungking Mansions. It takes place in Chungking Mansions. That's a neighborhood? Chungking Mansions is sort of a building. It's in Chimsha Choi, which is in Kowloon side. Hmm. Still currently a lot of like ethnic minority people live there. And prior, a lot of illegal activity was happening there. Hmm. Maybe it was not all true what was shown in the film, but I think it wouldn't be a stretch to say that those sort of things happened at Chungking Mansions. And the second half of the title Express being from Midnight Express, the snack bar that Faye works at and Cop 663 frequents. And also Takeshi Kaneshiro's Cop also frequents in the first half, which sort of joins the two together. Mm. And that was the thing that I've just found out. Like... (laughs) today when reading <laughs> when reading this book uh by Stephen Teo about Wang Gawai, which is a really great resource if anyone wants it. Oh wow. It, it sort of like uh, has a chapter on each film and how he made it and it was great. Mm. Even though there's uh, both halves are sort of like genre infused works, I think 
Wong calls them both single love stories about people in the city who share a common trait of being unable to channel their feelings to suitable partners. Ooh. Yeah. So this is basically Wong's first like full-on love story because Days of Being Wild is barely one and it's like sort of like uh, modeled after a rebel without a cause um, oh. type film. And As Tears Go By is like sort of your more down the line gangster film so the main inspiration for this film was surprise a murakami short story really (laughs) called uh on seeing the hundred percent perfect girl one beautiful april morning and it's about the mutability of perceptions (laughs) that's something that i found out today as well i'm like why are all my favorite films well not maybe it's just drive my car in this but why are they all based on Murakami short stories? <laughs> but apparently this guy was also really obsessed with Murakami. He's a big literary guy. And I think Wong has that ability to, to translate text to screen so well because he, he mm. uses monologues so heavily and you're able to get inside a character's interior emotional state so easily in his films. I can kind of see the Murakami influence in like certain like odd things that people do yeah. <laughs> and i mean the big one is like tony's character talking to his different household objects i think has a very very strong murakami flavor and i think also fei wong's character has a very strong sense of like murakami's sense of what women can be for him <laughs> uh which well, leads to a shade in your yeah in your voice <laughs> anyway <laughs> before the record my girlfriend just hates murakami <laughs> personally not, not, yeah personally i th- want to get into this later but let me we'll let you finish <laughs> wong really likes the the idea of crisscrossing narratives that a lot of road movies have and he wanted to achieve that quality with a hong kong film and and that's mm. sort of like what resulted in chungcheng express so i think him and william chang did try to i think edit a version of this film where you do cut between the different stories because days of being wild has multiple narratives that do cut between each other um quite a bit um but i think he realized that the the split down the middle is cleaner mm. and you do see both Faye and tony in the first half in glimpses i think that's like a really beautiful thing when you when you like watch it again you're like oh my god they're there yeah imagine if that's what the restorations were that he actually intercut it just really chopped up everything (laughs) that would have made me angry (laughs) because you cannot do that Wong (laughs) and he's like watch me (laughs) express redux And the last thing I think really important and the thing I also found out today was that so Andrew Lau and Christopher Doyle are credited as cinematographers on this. But um, the split is that Andrew Lau shot the first half of the film and then Chris Doyle shot the second half of the film. But a lot of the style of the film, which I think a lot of people have attributed to Christopher Doyle, was actually the work of Andrew Lau. Because from As Tears Go By, like the step printing effect was already heavily in use in that film. And I think it was used very beautifully in that film to sort of highlight moments of violence and action in a very like art housey way. But for this, it is to, I think it's all about the permanence of a specific moment. And that's what like Wong really loves, right? He loves specific moments, like a short period of time. And I think step printing, the the idea of repeating frames of an image a few more times than 
usual and have the action play out in like a sort of stop motion-y sort of way imprints those singular images into your brain a lot easier than a regular flowing image and I think it just really sticks out but it is one of Wong's calling cards and it is something that Andrew Lau pioneered under his films and not Chris Doyle um, just wanted to clear clear that up because step printing is such an important stylistic marker in Wong's work can we get a working definition of it how is it achieved what does it look like ultimately on screen so what happen like at least i'm pretty sure what happens when he shoots it is they crank the frame rate lower less frames get shot so when you play it back at regular like 24 frames per second like say you're shooting at 15 frames per second and you play it back at 24 frames per second you you're seeing things in fast motion that's the opposite of you're shooting like something like 60 frames per second and you're playing it back at 24 you get a slow motion image but with this fast motion image what Wong does in the edit is that he slows it down he repeats the frames of 15 frames per second or less that he shoots on set and repeats them so then it feels like it's actually happening in real time. Like the action is happening in real time, but the way that you're experiencing it is sort of flashes, like flashes of images mm. coming at you. Not a lot of other directors still do this. Like I think this is something that is Wong's own. And I feel like if someone tries to do it, like everyone's just gonna be like, you're copying Wong Gawai. When, when you were talking about Wong's work and he's always so concerned with ideas of of time and fleeting moments i think it's just very appropriate an appropriate stylistic calling card for him so effectively it's like watching someone dance in a strobe light where it's not changing how fast they're moving but you're seeing a sort of stuttering image of them and the thing that helps it feel smooth and makes it feel like continuous time which it is is that Wong tends to keep continuous sound happening yes. underneath the image. Yes. So in an example from the first chapter, when Bridget Lin is almost attacked in the marketplace and shoots some people and flees and runs onto the subway train, the image is doing this stuttering step printing effect, but you're hearing all the clattering, all the gunshots, people chasing and yelling, and that helps it feel like a continuous action scene, but there's this distancing effect on the visuals that reminded me of the melodramatic trope of the tableau Ooh. where it's pausing and highlighting these small moments and you don't get to focus on them for very long but they do last in your head and feel iconic yeah. so much of Wong's work feels iconic he's after those moments that feel like snapshots and little flash bulbs that stick with you I was going to come in and say I didn't know how I felt about step printing in general. But then when you talk about it like that, it's kind of interesting how it kind of, without actually slowing down action, slows down the action. Yeah. Yeah. And so, like, I'm just trying to imagine that first scene when Takeshi Kaneshiro's cop is, like, running around. And if that was played in a regular frame rate, how messy it would have looked. Yeah. And yes, it still looks messy, but because... Essentially, every frame you get to look at for like twice the time you generally would, you're able to register these moments within the action that it creates these mini moments within the scene where you can sort of get glimpses of the character almost like in a still. In a way, it makes those action sequences help to stay in your mind more as images rather than a rush of action, which I think is really interesting. 
And also from a practical standpoint, I think it's much easier to fake yeah. gunshots or... Yeah, it muddies the action so it's easier to like cheat. Yeah. <laughs> like the fight stuff and like you, it can be less violent but then look violent because of the step printing. And then also, yeah, used for other purposes as well, not just action. Mm. Let's talk about this movie. <laughs> like an hour in. I'm sorry, guys. It took me a while, but we don't have to do this director intro for the next three episodes. So that's, <laughs> that's true. So we're, we're clear on that. It was worth taking the time for sure. But I really like this diptych structure that Wong employs in this film and how basically he, he, he is making two separate movies in one that is concerned with the same idea of I guess, putting love in the wrong place or unrequited feelings of longing, hmm. except for sort of Bridget Lin's character, which Wong has has quoted in saying that everyone has feelings to give except for Bridget Lin. And he says, Bridget Lin's character doesn't have feelings. <laughs> she works nonstop and survival is more important to her. She's like a wild beast let loose in the jungle of Chungking mansions. <laughs> I don't know if I agree, actually. I don't think I fully agree either. Like, there are definitely, like, parts of her or, like, some dialogue or the the way that she interacts with Takeshi Kaneshiro yeah. um, later on in that half that suggests that she yearns for something more but has been this is her life she's a drug dealer she's a drug lord <laughs> I know you have a defense for this but I generally am pretty cold on the first half I know <laughs> and I've, I've probably said this to you before Wilson yes you have <laughs> but I would love to hear why you love this film as a whole because I find that maybe it's because Bridget Lin's character is supposed to be this unfeeling monster according to Wong Kar Wai <laughs> but it's hard to kind of figure out her place in the film because I mean first of all Takeshi Kenichiro can carry the shit out of the first half like he is oh, extremely charming hmm. extremely handsome and even though he's such an idiot in so many ways he's so watchable and with the monologues and everything he's so fun to watch and like Watching him, like, eat pineapple, yeah. put condiments on pineapple and, like, eating it. And he is so watchable. And he can carry the entire first half just by sure virtue of his longing for his ex-girlfriend and then his longing for Bridget Lin, who he has just met. But I don't know how I feel about this whole smuggler subplot thing, which we spend so much time on in the first half, that aside from, you know, painting kind of the backstory of Bridget's character, I don't really get much out of it aside from also... I guess, giving us a better sense of ethnic makeup of Hong Kong. This is something that I, through my years watching and re-watching Wong Gawai's movies, I've sort of like come to terms with that a lot of his early filmography is very much informed by his work writing genre flicks for TVB. Mm. I think the inclusion of Bridget Lin's character is very much that and i think this was also wong doing it in service of bridget lynn herself the star bridget lynn because prior to this bridget lynn was a massive 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 action star heroine love interest like big movie star of the 80s um, and has always played these more like androgynous characters that are always iconic and I think Wong utilizes her in this film and sort of wants to fit her into like a cops and robbers type story like I think this is him still really holding on 
to what historically has been pillars of Hong Kong filmmaking to that point. And I think, uh, I guess, Bridget Lin's inclusion in this is how you, you is his link back to, to genre filmmaking. I think that with As Tears Go By and Days of Being Wild, these three films is just sort of him introducing himself to the Hong Kong film industry and the Hong Kong audience goers as someone who can work with the industry but also wants to break free and you can really see him struggling with what I want and and what the people of Hong Kong want and I think with Chunking Express he really finally like hits that sweet spot where it both works on a genre level but also is able to be elevated into that higher emotional level as well Mm. I think my first few times watching Chunking Express the second half definitely like dominates in my head over the first half and I think it was only through like watching it over and over again and just like realizing how cool Bridget's character is (laughs) like and just her interactions with Takeshi Kaneshiro I think they just really play off each other really well like their energies like he's like a golden retriever and she's like a (laughs) like a cat like they're just like really like I think it, it is just so fun to try to see him like that that scene at the bar where he's asking her if she likes pineapple in multiple languages and her oh my god really not <laughs> so funny not having any of it like i had a long day like i i i just ran away from from a hundred people in chunking mansions she just killed a, a bunch of break. people i know <laughs> literal murderer <laughs> do you like pineapple yeah and it's also i think it's just a testament to wong's filmmaking and his his search of storytelling that he's able to bring these two characters who are basically from two different worlds mm. into this same space in the same night that they they share together and they they only share that one night first story is much more about these fleeting moments of what could be love rather than the second one where you're really sold on this relationship. Mm. And it is not just about that one moment. It is about this longing for someone else. In my head, it it really balances out very beautifully in its ability to show the different areas of it. But that is my long-winded explanation of why I like the first half. I kind of understand. Like In, in a way, you can sort of see the first half as like two separate threads of story meeting only at the climax and then ending yeah. very quickly after that. And I think like if you think of it in the structure, it kind of works to yeah. give that sense of loneliness. Yeah, they're both lonely. I think I'm just not really into it as much, but I can see how it works and yeah, I can buy that. I know. Eli, did you like the first half? There's a white guy in it. <laughs> <laughs> Doing stuff. <laughs> Getting shot. <laughs> well, speaking of that moment, that is a really interesting character that feeds into the reason why I don't agree with Wong saying that Bridget Lin's character has no feeling. In the glimpses of backstory that you get from her and her relationship with this guy, and in the glimpses of this guy with his next lover and dressing her up in the same Americanized, Mm. blonde wig, cool lady kind of way, you see the hurt that Bridget Lynn's character has gone through, and you really do see the emotion that she has. And she has the same heartbreak that Takeshi Kaneshiro's cop has. And they never really know it or acknowledge it to each other. But they share this small feeling and this moment when she sends him a happy birthday wish. Oh, 
It does have a lot of emotion. It is also very cool. (laughs) She's the only one who gets resolution for her heartbreak by going and shooting the guy. (laughs) Shoot the heartbreak. (laughs) Yeah. Because the movie feels spontaneous and loose overall, stylistically, somewhat narratively, I don't have so much of a hang up on the first half being something of a different beast than the second half. I see the thematic links, the stylistic links, obviously. It feels like a whole piece, though I will say that I find the second half more heartfelt. Mm -hmm. Though I will say that I find the second half more compelling or accessible up front because there isn't this cool, composed Bridget Lynn character who you're watching do action. It's about the emotion that these characters are feeling from the start Mm. with the second story. Whereas in the first story, you're getting Takeshi Kaneshiro's cop, his emotions from the start. But it takes a while to get to Bridget Lynn's character's emotions. In the second half, it's there from the start. Even though you see her doing a lot, you never get that interiority until further on. With both Takeshi Kaneshiro's character and Bridget Lynn's character, you both don't really know where that story is headed. Whereas... The second half has a romantic comedy kind of genre plot. Yeah, that's true. Where you kind of see where it's going. And so there's some investment and engagement purely from that. And in a way, it's a bit more generic. Whereas I would say the first half is a bit more experimental. Where you, It's essentially two short films that suddenly become one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's interesting, like from a construction standpoint. And I've come to appreciate all the solo Takeshi Kinshiro monologues where he's just like either on the phone or oh, on his so own good. talking to himself and he's just very charming and very just very fun to watch I already said this but uh, those are very funny monologues and you get a few echoes of that with Tony Leung's character where he does some funny stuff on his own a lot of Takeshi Kinshiro is just him making the scene on his own it's a great calling card for Takeshi Kinshiro it is it is because it happens it happens again but he can't say anything <laughs> in Fallen Angel the other thing uniting the two halves really coherently and consistently, is that both of these male characters are total himbos. Yeah. (laughs) They're so stupid and they're so beautiful. So sweet when Tony Leung is like, huh, did I leave my faucet running or is the apartment crying? (laughs) This towel looks different. It's a different stuffed animal. You look great. It's like, dude, it's (laughs) B&E breaking in. (laughs) Wake up. And I love when he finds out that it's happening. He's just like, okay, yeah, I'll just ask you on a date. It's sweet. I'll massage your feet. Yeah. <laughs> That's the beauty of filmmaking, right? Like you make make a lot of things that objectively are so weird and you just make them very like lovable and emotional and justifiable. And I think that's like a, I don't know, she is breaking and entering. <laughs> like, I think that's like, that's like a crazy thing to to really like pull off as a director to like get you to be like, yeah, yeah, I'm so for this relationship. I'm really for this relationship. This is one of Wong's great strengths. It's the ability to put unexpected behavior on screen and make it compelling and engrossing and so charged with longing. Across his movies, I think that's something we're going to return to. I've just been thinking, but like, is there a filmmaker that can succeed Wong in the way that Wong is? And I don't see anyone operating on this level. Not that it's technically a high level. It's just this kind of filmmaking and the kind of stories that he tells that, you know, it's a love story and it has certain kinds of beats, but it is constructed and then also 
just the process of making it is so unique that you get something just so hard to pin down that like how else will you construct something like this without operating the way that Wong does when he makes the film, you know, in yeah. kind of off the cuff, yeah. spontaneous way. Because there's so many movies I love that are about love, but they can definitely, when you step out of it, feel a little bit more constructed. Yeah. Whereas here, there's something very organic about the way that plot and story unfolds in a way that feels almost dreamlike. Yeah. yeah, almost associative rather than realistic. Mm-hmm. That is very difficult to emulate. Like it's a touch, it's a feeling. It's really <laughs> like it's, a it's, feeling. It's, it's not technique. It's <laughs> not. It's not anything that we can really break down. Mm-hmm. You just have it or you don't, and Wong Kar Wai has it, and yeah. we all don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't sure if I was going to bring this up. There's a Netflix show that came out a couple of years ago called Giri Haji, which is about a Japanese detective who travels to London and works with a detective in London on a case. And it very clearly, in my eyes, rips off Wong's style. Okay. So if we're talking about something that is trying to succeed Wong, it is possible to take his techniques of canted angles of the lighting, of changing from black and white to color, as he does in some of his other movies, of very extreme color timing. It's possible to take those things and apply them to something else entirely, but it lacks the heart when you don't have Wong's sense of, as Ben's saying, organic development of events and strange unusual, surprising behavior. When it's applied to this police procedural, it rings very hollow in my eyes. I couldn't finish it. It also made me a little angry because it's taking Wong's singular style and applying it to the boilerplate Netflix police procedural. And it just felt so cheap and dirty. (laughs) And uh, I don't know. It wasn't right. But Wong's fine. He knows no one can do it like he does. No one can do cheap and dirty like he can. No one can do that. (laughs) Because this is what this movie is cheap and it's dirty. And that's it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Even when you move on right to his more like higher budget work right like you can still see traces you can still see like the lineage from these earlier flicks like the spontaneity yeah 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 into like even something like in the mood for love which is very slow for a Wong Kar Wai film I guess at at least uh, up until that point but still feels very much like you're in his hands and it is Wong's movie Mm. Even Ashes of Time, which I don't think any of us are particularly fond of. <laughs> I love Ashes of Time. I love Ashes of Time so much. I can't wait to rewatch this film. <laughs> it definitely still is his movie. I also just have to quickly shout out because when else am I going to get to say this? My favorite Letterboxd review of all time oh. <laughs> is Ben's review of Ashes of Time. Thank you. And it's just all lowercase dashes of lime. One star. <laughs> take a bow. Take a bow, Ben. Thank you. It is a film I want to revisit because I, I honestly, the print that we saw was not great. Yeah. I'm not sure if the one that's playing on movie now is... I don't know what quality it is, but I do want to kind of revisit it after so many years and like see whether my thoughts on it has changed. I think it is very much like 2046 in that it is about a lot of different people feeling a lot of, lot of different things. Mm. I don't know. It sometimes just, he just loses track of himself <laughs> and it's just, it's just wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong. <laughs> 
Anyway, let's talk about that second half. Let's go to the second half. Yeah. Oh, all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. Oh, we don't even talk about like the thing that joins both halves also. Like the stylistic thing that joins both halves of the movie is that they have uh songs that they repeatedly play throughout each half. So in the first half, it's Things in Life, and in the second half, it is It's California Dreamin', and also a little bit of What a Difference a Day Makes. And also a little bit of Dreams. And also, <laughs> after after this 2021 edit, it is <laughs> Dreams. Yeah, dreams. <laughs> My Fei Wong. It's like a good trio of songs to soundtrack your movie. And what Wong does that he continues to do through his films is that he likes to repeatedly use songs again. And I think it's such an effective way to get you back into a moment. It, yeah, it is sort of like making a theme for a character, like how some composers do. But instead of a theme, he just uses a iconic pop song. And that pop moment, I, I, I live for it. I tried to count on this viewing how many times he plays California Dreamin' in the second half. Is it nine? I lost count. I think it's seven or eight. It's a lot. It's a lot. It almost gets annoying a after lot. a while. <laughs> to be honest, from my perspective. There's a time when the song wraps up and then it immediately starts up again. It's like, ah, <laughs> come on. Just heard this. I love the second half. There's so yes. much to love about the second half. Tony and Faye are just so lovable and cute yeah. and i don't know mm. they're just really convincing romantic leads and all you want for them is to be happy and to be together and we sort of get there almost <laughs> we sort of we're, get we're close we're i close. think uh, man the thing that i think about with chunking is that with a lot of times that we talk about stories about love on this podcast i always struggle with the trope of love at first sight and there is that trope here where Faye is enamored with tony whereas tony is you know still reminiscing and porn about his ex-girlfriend may who is an air stewardess and i think here he kind of sidesteps that problem for me because you get that characterization from Faye where she is enamored but not quite sure about tony she's fascinated by him yes and at the end she doesn't just go into his arms she chooses that step yeah to go to california and then that extension of time that kind of melodramatic extension of longing that in real film time is only maybe like a minute yeah. A few minutes, but then in the actual film, <laughs> story time is a year, but you feel it with the shots that he uses, those tableau step printed shots, that it feels like there is time for that absence, for that for their fondness for each other to kind of grow a little bit more. That I think is one of the greatest successes of this half of the film for me as a romantic story, that it really is able to sell that romantic partnership in a way that even with certain lines and scenes that could come off very corny come off completely earnestly and very heartfelt yes that's a good point i never know how to judge the corniness or over the topness of lines when they're translated from other languages into subtitles mm. but if they are corny oh they're corny <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're corny <laughs> then it's completely sold by these two performances and their chemistry undeniable it's undeniable it's that moment where he oh my god where she's like what do you want and he leans in and he asks her to lean in as well and she yeah. leans in and it's sort of this persona two shot type thing and he's like i want a chef salad and it's like the tension breaks and it's like oh wow that's their first scene together you know what that moment makes me think of what in the spongebob episode ripped pants <laughs> what do you need i need what do you need i need a tailor because I ripped my pants. 
the use of the really loud music also lets them, you know, get really close when they're talking to each other mm. over the counter. Right. Here's the thing I want to zero in on in this film, which I was just thinking about, which is Fei Wong's characterization in this film is really interesting to me because of this term that we all know. Your manic pixie dream girl. Yes. Because I was thinking about, because I have deep and undying love for the kind of character that Fei is. <laughs> that weird awkward, sweet, weirdo that this character Faye is. I was just thinking about it, and this loops in the Murakami aspect, which is that this is sort of a dream girl. Maybe okay, maybe not for everyone, but like for me, sort of. <laughs> Where there is that kind of strange, Safe space. awkward energy, but the kind of thing that she has is that she is in love with the main character. And of course, if you were to watch this and say, put yourself in Tony's shoes, then this film just works like gangbusters <laughs> but i think just thinking about that term you know manic pixie dream girl and like whether that's problematic is interesting and i was wondering whether this film is able to sidestep the problems that that stereotype has you know what i mean well, i think the the general problem with the manic pixie dream girl is always when you see her right it's always framed from the male protagonist's perspective right mm. but i would argue that the second half is like Faye is the main character of the second half and yeah it, it's usually the male pr- protagonist's love for the manic pixie dream girl that is unrequited the whole point of the second half is is Faye trying to get tony to to realize that she's in love with him or it's it's not just that but she is very much infatuated with him more than he is with her uh, for a lot of that second half and i think because of that shift and because you are put in her shoes more than in his shoes it works a lot better and you understand what she wants and what she tries to do to get what she wants and also a lot of other problems with manic pixie dream girls is that they're just hollow they say that they lack an interior life yeah yeah no agency yeah okay here but here's my kind of my slight pushback on what you're saying like i i do see that Faye is is somewhat of a main character in the second half but then the fact that we get a glimpse into Tony's home life, but we don't get a glimpse into Faye's home life is interesting. Mm. Uh, because when you think about Faye's character, she, at least within this story, what we see is mainly her interactions with, with Tony. Whereas Tony is about with May and with Faye and a little bit of him on his own talking to his inanimate objects. <laughs> <laughs> that's about as far as you go in terms of other parts of his life that's not romantic. Like, I think what kind of lets this problem kind of fade away from me when I think about it. And of course, this term doesn't come into fruition until like years after Chunking comes out. Is that Faye is weird, not for the sake and attraction of Tony. Maybe for me, the viewer, yes. But she is, that's just kind of her character type. That's just what she is. She's doing these things kind of almost, I would say, for her own kind of weird enjoyment when she cleans up his apartment. Yeah. And the way that she plays it, she doesn't want to be found out by Tony because she is so shy. Right. And does not want to tell him that she is interested in him in some way. And the fact that Tony is not interested in her at all is also kind of how I can push back on that stereotype being applied to this film although yeah I don't know it's kind of like this weird thing when I'm looking at it from a very distance perspective how's this Ben how's this Ben you have a manic pixie dream girl what about a himbo hottie dream boy yeah yeah (laughs) I was gonna go there (laughs) we have that 
truckloads of that in this yeah. movie. We have two halves of that. <laughs> There's a lot of himbos in his movies, and they're like basic. They're they're pretty hollow. Well, I guess you you could you could like read them very well, right? And I feel like wow, he's sort of he's really subverting it before it even was a thing. So mm, I see that himbo pioneer. <laughs> Okay, the first few shots of Tony where you see him walking from the foreground in a wide shot directly into a close-up where he removes his hat and adjusts his hair. That's like, what are you doing, man? Like, that's... (laughs) What are you doing? Like, stop doing that. (laughs) I think think that that. shot repeats like three or four times. I know, because he knows... And every time you're like, oh, shit, Tony. (laughs) Wong Kar-wai knows this man is hot shit. He knows. He knows. He utilizes that. My God. Talking about repeated shots, I think this is how the second half for me feels, despite its spontaneous energy feels like it has some kind of organization or some sort of pre-planning which is the use of repeated shots like the shot that we just mentioned and also i think many of the shots in tony's apartment are interesting in the way that we're doubling Faye and may and i find that stuff like is there meaning to it not really maybe maybe there's meaning to it but it just creates a lot of visual pleasure and visual mirroring that kind of evokes a sense of tony's kind of romantic life you know, between these two women. This shot that always jumps out at me, which is a shot into a mirror off the bed and him and May rolling around on it. And then yeah. there's a repeated shot of Faye rolling around the bed By herself, in that yeah. same mirror. And I think about the process of filming this and how they must have been cataloging these shots in their brain and then realizing, you know, we should repeat this with this with the other lady mm. to kind of create this mirroring effect that I don't know what effect it has, but it has... I don't know, it's like a very oddly satisfying feeling of like, this is correct. You know, this this is what I want to see right now. I, it's, it's extremely hard to explain. There are a lot of techniques like repeated compositions or even things that aren't repeated like these extreme camera movements and cants and of course, very rhythmic and punctuated editing. These techniques that draw your attention to the authorial hand of Wong and his collaborators. A question that I want to pose that I doubt we'll really answer, but I think we can come back to across these episodes on Wong, is how does Wong have these techniques that draw your attention to his presence as a storyteller and still make them not feel obtrusive or distract you from the emotion of what's happening on screen? How does he use these things, which for other filmmakers would feel flashy and disruptive, and instead embed them into your engagement in the movie? I don't think Wong is thinking of these things as flashy or trying to like show you, look, what can I do? Look, look at me. Look at me. I, it's never like that. With I think with a lot of other directors, it, it is very much like that. But yes, I think we always go back to what Ben sa- started saying at the start of this episode is that Wong makes movies based on emotion. Everything he does is based on emotion and wh- how you feel. So if he plays a thing and slows it down and how he feels in the editing room changes then he he makes that decision he makes that editing decision mm-hmm. and yes i get i guess he could he has inspiration from other directors like i i i think he he said that herd song is like a is a big director for him really but i think stylistically he doesn't draw from cinema history like i don't think there any of that there i think he just is given the tools that he has 
and he just tries to make what he wants to make with what he has and if that takes trying to push limits of what is conventionally normal for filmmaking yeah he'll do it in order for you to feel that thing and if he achieves you feeling that thing then he's done his job my answer is that he it's all flash and i'm kidding (laughs) (laughs) i'm half kidding but he just throws so much at you in terms of like stylistic devices in this film there's a lot of handheld there's a step printing there's a tableau step printing these arcing shots in the flashback sequences when tony's flashing back to his time with his girlfriend you have intense music video like montage there's a lot going on here that i'm half kidding when i say that because every time he throws something new at you it doesn't feel that crazy because so much of it is him doing so much experimental stuff that it nothing no one thing sticks out and they feel cohesive because there is if not a cohesive style, but maybe a cohesive vibe, which... Ethos. Yeah. My most hated word is vibe, but <laughs> it works in this sense because I don't. there's no other way to explain it. Wong makes vibe a palatable. <laughs> it's hard to say, though. I think it's hard to say. I think because this is such a lightning in a bottle yeah. compared to his other movies, it really feels like it's its own beast that, <laughs> that Wong is, is yeah. trying to like contain into this movie i'm sure that is really reflective of a lot of his whole filmography because of the amount that he shoots and the amount he cuts out but because chunking was made in under such like small time pressures for me it's sort of like magic in a moment and that's sort of why it, it stands tall in my personal ranking of wong movies is because of the circumstances that we all know in which it was made and the the miraculous outcome of what came out of it, which was this movie. This movie couldn't have been made if it wasn't made in that specific moment and in those specific two months in that specific locations and with the specific restrictions that Wong and his team had. It feels like if any of those elements were out of step because of the flap of a butterfly wing, <laughs> that this film wouldn't exist in this form at all yeah because everything is almost like of what was available at the time and you can feel that from watching this movie that right it could only exist this way because many things fell into place for it to exist this way maybe fei wong wasn't gonna be in this movie for whatever fucking reason maybe she was recording an album who the hell knows like I, it's crazy oh also fun fact uh not fun fact but like people should know that fei wong is a singer and not an actress and this is her first acting role Mm. and Wong has subsequently liked to work with singers most notably Nora Jones for uh, My Blueberry Nights. (laughs) (laughs) That point Ben's making about this movie feeling like it's of the moment and could only exist under these circumstances in this time in this place and it is a time capsule of this group of artists working together Unfortunately, to circle back to the question of the 2021 updates, (laughs) I do think that's why you can feel those moments that have been changed, maybe for this movie in particular. Mm. I can I can see that. Yeah, a lot of me watching it this time with the with the new version, I was just like, this is (laughs) this is not the movie that I loved as a kid. (laughs) This is not Mm. not the same movie. Mm. Uh, Why am I watching a different movie? But I don't know if if, uh, if the feeling still rings as as loudly as it does, which I I would still say it does. 
I don't really have a problem with it as long as like the, the both versions are still available so you you still have the yeah. the decision to choose and I'm not going to tell someone not to watch the new restored version if they are watching it for the first time because I don't think that the changes are big enough for me to be like hey don't don't watch the one that he wants you to watch yeah I think the mistake would be to try and kill the original or what we think of as the original versions. I don't know whether he's going to go full George Lucas on this, but <laughs> right now it doesn't seem like he is going to, but it is hard to say, you know. <laughs> In the box set, it is on the Criterion release, the alternative version, but it's also on the box set. Okay. Like, so it, in the physical release, there are two versions. Oh, that's of, really interesting. Yeah, okay. Of, of the hmm. films. A technique that I wanted to bring up was... Wong's use of objects to conduct emotion. <laughs> so we've talked about how the repetition of shots or specific locations for different characters creates a sort of chill in the audience, right? Seeing Takeshi Kaneshiro and then Tony Leung show up at the same restaurant, them not knowing about the other character and their inner emotions makes us feel a sort of longing to unite those two experiences. I'm thinking about how the airplane model in Tony Leung's apartment is an object of great personal significance to him because it was given to him by his ex-girlfriend, the stewardess. And he lands it on her back in this very sensuous shot when they're lounging together in the heat and she's half naked and he lands the airplane on her back and it's a moment of intimacy between them. When Fei Wong is then in his apartment, she's zooming around the apartment with this model airplane and like dunking <laughs> it in his fish tank. And she's also wearing the air stewardess dress as well. <laughs> yeah. It becomes an object of play and curiosity and fascination for her that mirrors these feelings that she has for Tony Leung's character. And we have the double-layered meaning of knowing what that model means to Tony Leung. His dick. So it takes on... Hmm? His dick. <laughs> it's his dick. Yeah, say it louder for the people in the back. <laughs> I'm sorry. Sorry for breaking your train of thought. Continue, Eli. Well, maybe there's another point here now. <laughs> Fun fact, when Ben was making his senior thesis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the the one scene that he showed me to, I guess, try to convince me to, to shoot his thesis was that scene from... The Jimmy entire Express. thing. Which is yeah. weird because it really didn't really end up like chunking. It became more no, like something didn't. else, which is really weird. How you sell me is... <laughs> It's that easy. Just show me a scene from Wong Kar Wai movie. Also, being hung out to dry as the kind of person trying to emulate Wong Kar Wai and also failing, <laughs> as we mentioned early on in this episode. But anyway. You took a different direction. <laughs> there are other less phallic examples of this, though, <laughs> where characters, unbeknownst to them, share an experience and have emotion conducted from one to the other through an object. The ability to use a prop like that to take emotion one, emotion two, and combine them into a new emotion for the audience is a really special and specific experience. It gives you a kind of emotional nostalgia and longing. I think the key is, at least with these films, that Wong doesn't prioritize like dialogue to tell story in his films mm. at all. Yes. What happens is is like he shoots and he shoots action. So action speaks for the characters in any way that they like use objects around them. And then he pads it out and he adds meaning it to it in post through monologue. Mm. And that's 
part of the the secret sauce, the special sauce to Wong's movies that that make it work so well is because you're trying to express yourself through the things that you do and. I think using objects at least a lot more in in the in the second half of Chungking is was so effective to link Tony and Faye and May together while also not really having a lot of scenes that Tony and Faye share together mm. uh, like I think I don't think a lot of the screen time is is both of them sharing a room or being in the same space and talking to each other uh, a lot of the longing and the emotion building is done through action and through these objects that you as an audience member have assigned like meaning and emotion to yeah really smart simple stuff I'm very glad that we are going into Wong's filmography, and I think that Chungking is sort of the perfect start to it. I feel like we are going to end up tackling these Wong films in a chronological order, so I think this is a great way to, to start and to introduce all our listeners to Wong. And also, if you have not seen any Wong Kar Wai movies, I would say that Chungking is a great first Wong to watch. I'm trying to, is there a meme about like drugs and like this is the thing that's going to send you down a dark path of cinephilia? Because <laughs> <laughs> exhibit A, Wilson. <laughs> it happened to my friend Wilson. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us where you listen to podcasts so you'll know when our next episode drops. You can keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram. And Facebook and Letterboxd at Deep Cut Pod. Join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description below. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Mm-hmm.